0: Amen, amen. Um, very nice to see you. Have a seat. Um, good to see you all. Sarah, that's your first time leading here, isn't it? Yeah. Can we have a round of applause for Sarah? Wasn't that great? Um, and welcome to you. If this is your first time here, you're just visiting us. It's great to have you with us. Uh, my name's Ed, and uh, I lead the church with my wife, Hannah. Uh, and um, it's very nice to have you with us. Uh, so yes, Christmas. Christmas is going to be amazing. It's going to be great. Do not miss out. Bring everyone you know. It's a very easy ask, just saying that. Um, we are entering the end game of Colossians. And like many other great pieces of literature, uh, this final act has the best, most poignant, most powerful stuff in it. Um, now, for those of you who are here last week, Hannah, my wife, was speaking, and she said that I'd be talking about submission. I'm not talking about submission this week. She was wrong. I'm talking about submission next week. If only she'd listen to me. If only she had, let's say, submitted. Ah, yeah. Anyway, at least next week will be timely for one person. I'm joking. But if you do want to hear me speak on submission, you can hear that next week. It's almost certainly not what other people talk about when they talk about submission. So that'll be fun. Anyway, essentially this week and next week, the final two chapters of Colossians are Paul arriving at the ethical meat of the whole letter. He has, uh, in the previous chapters, established the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is at the center of the whole of creation. He is above it and over it all. He is also at the center of our salvation. No one and nothing else can set us right with God apart from him. And he is at the center of our ongoing, lived-out Christian life. So, as I said a couple of weeks ago, it's not the case that Jesus saves us and then it's up to you. It's the case that Jesus saves us and then it's up to him. He backs his investment and he wants us to become everything that we're supposed to be. Which is why, as Hannah brilliantly spoke about last week, there is no room for human attempts to legislate for our sinful or what Paul sometimes calls earthly or fleshly nature. Paul has absolutely no time for this non-gospel. And Paul is kind of the master of slapdowns, uh, and here he brings out from the top drawer of his gold encrusted slapdowns his probably best slapdown of anything. He says this: "These rules," says Paul, "they are based on merely human commands and teachings. They have an appearance of wisdom, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence whatsoever. Zero, zilch, nothing, nada, zip, diddly squat, nout." No value whatsoever, mic drop from Paul. Human-based attempts to deal with our sinfulness are like taking wild animals, lust, the great white shark, hate, the saltwater crocodile, the venomous snakes of fear and greed, these dead behind the eyes, evil monsters, soulless killing machines it's like taking them and putting them in a cage caged they are but still very much alive gnashing and thrashing about paul's solution the gospel solution is far more drastic caging is futile they are still there after all instead Paul says. Instead, the gospel says, let's kill them all. And indeed, all of them have been killed in Jesus' body on the cross. So, here we get to Paul answering the pressing question of how then are we, followers of Jesus, going to experience the holiness, the goodness, the freedom, the Christ-likeness? How is that to be had? And his answer is this, die with Jesus to the old and rise with him to the new. So this is chapter three, uh, beginning at verse one. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For when you died and your life so, Sorry, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Little aside. This isn't the place to get into it properly here, but just quickly. One. The God of the Bible is not like all the neighboring gods. The surrounding gods are vindictive, they are punitive, they are harsh, they act uh, seemingly arbitrarily whenever they want. They would smite people just because they felt like it, because it's fun now and again. The God of the Bible, on the other hand, is slow to anger and abounding in love. But sadly for many, this real God has been represented a lot more like the made-up gods, Poseidon and Zeus, for instance, or maybe evil Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars, who is firing lightning bolts out of his fingers and smiting people for the hell of it. Secondly, the outworking of God's righteousness, his pure, holy, perfect justice, or as the Bible now and again puts it, but is probably um, somewhat unhelpful to us in the way that this term has been twisted, God's wrath is never, ever directed towards people. It is directed towards sin. All aspects of sin, in fact. Human, personal, corporate, institutional, and cosmic. So, let us always separate the person from the sin. It helps us get things in the right, correct perspective. And thirdly, all of this, don't worry, we need not to worry about it one little bit. Because of Jesus, in whom God's fullness of love has won out over all sin and death, we don't need to worry. We can be totally free knowing that it's all done. We are, as Paul says earlier in this passage, one with him, safe and secure, hidden, in fact, in him, never to be taken from him. Good. Let's carry on. I'm glad we had that little chat. Uh, Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, and it's, Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other, and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. As I said, powerful stuff. Before we get into the specifics, though, of the theology and the application, let's take a little step back, shall we? It may seem obvious, but before we can get into how we change as people, we need to address two preliminary issues. Number one, we need to know that change is even possible. And number two, even before that, we need to acknowledge that change is something that we might actually need to do. Now, I know that second point might be obvious to you, but I have to say, in my job, I talk to a lot of people, and these are some of the things that people have said to me, and I do believe that these people genuinely believe that this is true about themselves this is some of the things they've said i've never done anything wrong i am a better person than everyone else i know i have never let anyone down i've never been wrong about anyone now as i said i know that for most people the awareness of their shortcomings isn't really an issue You know them very well as I do, but you may be surprised actually how common it is for people to think actually I'm alright, it's everyone else that's the problem. There is a famous Gandhi quote, he said something like this, I love your Christ but I do not like your Christians, they're so unlike your Christ, which is a good quote and it's kind of true and we all nod along and go yes, yes Gandhi, so wise, you're so right. The problem, though, is the people we have in view is everyone else, right? All the other Christians, particularly the high-profile ones that we can see really messing things up, but never ourselves. So actually saying, uh, yes, Gandhi, I agree, they're terrible, aren't they, is not very helpful to us at all. It would be better for us to say, yeah, we can be like that, can't we? So... It's a happy sunny morning, let us take this opportunity to have a look in our own eyes for little bits of wooden planks and not worry too much about the speck in other people's eyes, shall we? And of course everything I've just said would be veering on the totally meaningless if I didn't also include myself in this process. I have to let you in on this, that one of the uncomfortable jobs of being a preacher is that I have been looking at this passage all week. You just get 25 minutes of it, and then you get to go to brunch. I've had this all week, thinking about my malice and my hatred and my lust and my lack of forgiveness and my lack of love. All week, I sit with this, praying about it, meditating on it, thinking about it, asking it to speak to me. All week, you get 25 minutes. You don't know how lucky you are. (laughs) But the point, point is, please rest assured that... I am fully engaged in this process as much as you may be. So do we need to change? Heck we do. But is change even possible? The way in which Paul answers this question is very important. Yes, of course change is possible. And how do I know? Because it's already emphatically and fundamentally happened just going to grab some water. It's a long enough lead. At the heart of his theology is this stark binary contrast. Death on the one hand, resurrection on the other. Old self on the one hand, new self on the other. There are no gradations, We are not talking about shades of grey here. It is black versus white, past versus present. Verse 7, you used to be like this. Verse 8, but now you don't. And the reason for all of this is Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection. To be a Christian is to have in somewhat a mysterious way been part of what Jesus experienced on the cross. We have died with him, but we haven't stayed dead. We have also risen with him. And herein lies the extraordinary power of what Jesus did at Easter. In his self-giving love at Calvary, he has been victorious over sin and death so that all who look to him have been made something completely and utterly new and different. Verse 12, chosen, holy, dearly loved, God's people. This happened once and for all, and it cannot be changed. It cannot be reversed. Despite all your imperfections, all your ethically wobbly bits, all your character flaws and warts, all your sinful displays, nevertheless, 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 you and I, pure, spotless, perfect in his sight whole new creations but not just you and me everyone and anyone it is open to all so for this reason there is no point us in our own strength trying to change ourselves into something shiny and wonderful and beautiful for the very reason that that has already happened you want to hear my slightly clunky analogy? It doesn't matter what the answer to that is. You're (laughs) going to hear it. Imagine a gooseberry tree. No one likes gooseberries. They are awful. They are sour and horrible. Do you say something other than gooseberry? Gooseberry. You don't know what a gooseberry is. Lucky you. They are the fruit of the devil. They are disgusting little green things. Do Do you have another name for it? Have you just not ever had a gooseberry? What's the worst fruit that America has? Crab apple. apple. Okay, let's go with crab apple. Imagine a crab apple, but three times as bad. (laughs) This is a gooseberry. I'm going with gooseberry. You'll just have to get used to it. Oh. Oh, well. Gooseberries are sour and green. Okay, imagine you're a gooseberry tree. You don't want to be a gooseberry tree because you are the fruit of the devil. I'm joking, but you don't want to be a gooseberry tree. If you were to fertilize yourself, would you still be a gooseberry tree? Yes, you would. You would just have more gooseberries. If you were to prune yourself, would you still be a good gooseberry tree? Yes, you would. You would just have bigger gooseberries. You need to become an orange tree, because oranges are beautiful and succulent and lovely. And the only way to become an orange tree is if the gooseberry tree is ripped out of the soil and instead is planted an orange tree. That's what's happened to you. That's what Jesus has done. He has killed off that evil tree, that horrible yucky tree, in his celestial incinerator, and instead replaced it with something beautiful, something wonderful, you. Verse 9, you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self. Is change possible? Absolutely. And it's already happened. In three days, on a lonely hill, in the outskirts of Jerusalem, where the king of the universe, in isolation and misery, died a death amongst two thieves, and then rose again and finished it all forever. And what he proclaims is, death, where is your sting? So, on one level, and especially for those of us who have been told exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying here, that actually we are in a constant flux between old and new, and you better try harder, otherwise you might move from new to old once and for all and never be able to get back. Can you hear again, or hear for the first time, or replace that deathly message with the message of good news, the actual gospel? it is vital for all of us to fully embrace the terrible scandal of what has happened. You are not a gooseberry and you will never be ever again. So, can you just let yourself off the hook? Because Jesus has taken you off that hook. So stop, for God's sake, for Jesus' sake, putting yourself back on the hook. And for your own sake, too, of course. And on another level, having done that, let us also have some courage. Let us have some courage to partake in the ongoing process of becoming juicier, bigger, more succulent, wonderful oranges. Verse 10. The tense switches in the Greek. You have taken off your old self and have the new self, past, it's done. But now, present continuous, the new self is being renewed. Once and for all, final, and also ongoing process. In my language, you're not a gooseberry anymore, so stop being a gooseberry. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Verse 8, but now you must also rid yourself of all such other things. Oh man, there's more. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices. Now, you may be relieved to hear that I'm not going to meticulously go through each one of those individual sin examples for reasons I will come on to, other than at this moment to talk about one in particular. The word for slander in verse 8 in the Greek is actually blasphemia, which is where we get our word blasphemy from. As I'm sure you'll know, blasphemy is to dishonor, disrespect God with our language. So why does Paul use this word here to describe slander? The answer has to do with how embedded Paul's theology of redeemed humankind is in in all his thinking. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. They are his icons, made like him, little vice-regents of God, wandering around in the earth. And Jesus has redeemed them for himself, to be the holy, chosen, wonderful people of his. So, when we slander another human being, it's as if we might as well be slandering God. Humankind and the divine are so intrinsically linked for Paul as to be totally inseparable, in fact. And the wider point is this. Our new self, it does not exist in a vacuum. The word self is probably a little bit misleading in this sense. Our new self is not an individualistic one. Our new self is a corporate one. We are, to carry on my tortuous analogy, you thought it had finished, but we're going to carry on. We are not lone orange trees by ourselves. We are orange trees in acres and acres and acres of beautiful orange groves, touching up against lots of other orange trees. Where there is no Gentile, no Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And so, putting off our old self is not simply for our own benefit. It is also for the benefit of everyone else. Slander does not just destroy the fabric between human relationships. It also destroys the fabric between our relationship with God. But it doesn't just destroy the fabric between our relationship with God. It also destroys the fabric between all other human relationships. And the same goes for every other thing on that list. And these lists you can read throughout the New Testament. They are always, though, symptoms, not causes. They're almost certainly borrowed from early Jewish teaching and they are never actually understood to be exhaustive. And we're also not supposed to, and this is very important, see them as sort of tick lists. Oh, look, tick that one off, haven't done that, smug face. Tick that one off, I have done that, sad face. It's not how it works they are rather signals or markers that something has gone very wrong. Which is, of course, not to say that it's not helpful for us now and again to ask ourselves, how are we doing on the greed front? How are we doing on the lust front? How are we doing on the lying front? But rather, Paul is much more interested in what Jesus is doing and has done to all of these things Every possible manifestation of sin in all its guises. And what he has done and is done is he is killing it off in his body. And he beckons us to die again with him, again and again, and to rise again with him, again and again. So to avoid this sermon becoming about a list of things, or one sin in particular that either is applicable or not applicable to you, let us go beneath the surface. Let's go to something a little bit more fundamental, a little bit more universal. Now, this might feel a bit like a tangent, but please bear with me. Follow my logic here. Jesus, the perfect example of humanity without sin, was able to be like he was amongst other things because he had a perfect relationship with his father. There was no barrier between him and God's love. He received it all and it was knowing perfect, unconditional love that enabled him to be what he was like. You and I, we are different. All our human experiences of love have in some ways been deficient, somewhat, some horribly so. And so it follows that in order to have the best chance of exhibiting some of the symptoms that Paul then comes onto of a good godly life, i.e. compassion, kindness, humility, etc., we need to identify the deficit experiences of love that we have experienced. And so having done so, we might replace them with God's unconditional healing and restorative love. Now, this isn't just my pastor's wisdom coming at you. This is also years and years of 21st century's best psychotherapeutic minds, their research and their data coming at you as well. And guess what? They all come to the same conclusion that Paul does here uh, uh, as well 2,000 years earlier, which is what we need is unconditional love. It binds everything together in perfect unity, and it actually enables us to be the people that we sense that we could be, that we might be, now and again, verse 14. So, if you don't mind to end, let us consider those deficient experiences of love together. Now, this is not a personality test. I quite like personality tests, and when I say quite like, I say don't really like at all. Uh, but it is not a personality test, and it's not really about character. It's not really about your gifts or your drives or your dreams. This is purely how love was experienced by you in your formative years, in your early childhood really. Psychotherapists identify these three core sensitivities and hopefully they will appear magically behind me. Separation sensitivity, esteem sensitivity, and safety sensitivity. Separation sensitivity, this is your core fear, if this is you being left alone. Esteem sensitivity, your core fear being criticised or rejected. Safety sensitivity, your core fear being intruded on or controlled. Full disclosure, that one's me. So let's try and unpack it a little bit. Now, remember, this is how our deficient experiences of love affect our attitudes and our sensitivities when it comes to relationships, both relationships with other people and God. And most people identify with one category, some people two, um, but sometimes we're not actually conscious of them at all. So, separation sensitivity is the idea that it's keeping people close and doing whatever it takes to keep people close that drives our need for relationship. And you have, if this is you, you may have been told that your standards for relationship are too high. You may have often felt very misunderstood, but your big fear is being abandoned. Will I be alone? Esteem sensitivity. This is where your prime fear in relationship is being criticized. The need to be seen as special or high achieving or a wonder to the world. The most unloving thing that a person could say to you is to tell you that, they've done, that you've done something wrong. Or to point out a flaw, even if you naturally know it's there. Speaking truth in love is the most oxymoronic concept to you because how could you criticize someone if you love them? And finally, safety sensitivity. This is about the fear of the people you love getting too close to you. It feels unsafe to let them in. It feels like you're being intruded upon. It feels like, actually, if you do, they'll take control. It's not that you don't want intimacy. I definitely want intimacy. It's just that you'd never admit it because, oops, I just admitted it, but then the people you love might take over. They might take advantage of your vulnerability and you must not be vulnerable. Now, these are all autopilot, self-protective patterns. But the great news is, and the science is actually very clear on this, By simply being aware of them, which is why I've put them up here, we can actually begin to change them. We can step out of the boxes, but we can only do so when we know that we're in a box. And the way to step out of these boxes is through the power of Jesus. So let's get practical for a moment or two. Methods for change that are not based in Jesus' death and resurrection tend to operate in these sorts of terms. Either one, think differently. Change your mind. Think positive thoughts, not negative ones. Or feel differently. Change your scenery. Experience something else. Explore yourself. Care for yourself. Or number three, behave differently. Try harder work more, or try less, work less. In contrast, here is the method for change based in Jesus' death and resurrection. Believe him, worship him, receive him. Believe the truth of the gospel. Believe what you actually believe about what I have been talking about. That Jesus died and he resurrected. That you died and you resurrected. And that you are now a new creation. Believe it. It will change your life. It is finished. He has saved you. Worship him. Which means put him in his rightful place. We are no longer captains of our own ship. We love to be captains of our own ship and we keep trying to take back control. But when we worship him, what we're actually doing is saying, I give up, I give up and I put you in the right place and I trust you and I worship you and you are the one who is going to be in charge. And when we're really doing it properly, we're saying you can do whatever the hell you like with me. And receive him. Without an ongoing experience of the Spirit, We are like cars with no gas in them. We are like bodies that are infected. We need the Spirit to both fill us up with his power and to heal us from all our infection. And we need all of that over and over again as the things of this earth hit us. But above all, what we need to receive from him is the unconditional, never-ending love of our Father in heaven who adores you. It's a love which chooses you over and over again. It's a love which adopts you, brings you into his family. It's a love which welcomes you despite it all and in light of it all. It's a love which asks no questions of you It's a love which demands nothing from you in return. It's a love which never ever stops for you, which cannot be held back. It's a love that's always on offer. And it's a love that is here and now, as his presence works in you right now. And it's when we receive these things that we can actually have a chance of being the people that we're supposed to be. We can actually form relationships in the kingdom of God that look like healthy relationships. There are no shortcuts or excuses for this. This is what Christian community actually looks like. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Don't you want to be part of something that looks like that? It also looks like this. Forbearance. Dealing with you. You, difficult people. It means forgiveness. Now, forgiveness can take a lifetime. Forgiveness is very different to trust. Some people should not be trusted. But we don't get to choose if we don't forgive people. We actually have to forgive them. C.S. Lewis once said, um, everyone thinks forgiveness is a wonderful idea until they have someone to forgive. And Desmond Tutu, who knows a thing or two about suffering injustice, said, yeah, but without forgiveness, there is no future. Do you want a future? Do you want a future with people? Or do you want to be alone? Now, I do not want to belittle, in any way, injustice that people have experienced in this room. And I know that the scars can run deep. And I know that people can feel a horrible sense of loss, of pain, of something being taken from them. I am not belittling that. But for our own sake, let's start the process of forgiveness. At least start the process. Because really, all it does is tie us to them. They're probably fine. The kingdom of God, the church that we're aiming for here, and let us say we've got quite a long way to go, but we're on the right path. The church that we are aiming for here is one in which everyone has a place favoritism died on the cross, cliques, infighting, special treatment, racism, superiority, judgmentalism, all of that died on the cross. There is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Do you know why the barbarians are called the barbarians? The barbarians are called the barbarians because they didn't speak Greek. And the Greeks thought this was pathetic. And so to mock them, and they were um, mocked and rejected and despised, they would make fun of how they sounded not speaking Greek and go, ba 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 Ever made fun of how someone sounds? I know I have. And Jesus says, I'll have them. They're in. Scythians. Do you know who Scythians are? They were traveling people, nomadic people, They were even more scum than barbarians to the Greeks. Probably closest to how some people would see Romani people now. Low lives. Jesus says, I'll have them. And slaves, and Gentiles, and Jews, and all the people that we would like to think are a bit worse than us. So, would you like to die again, and would you like to rise again? That's what's on offer. Should we stand? So at the end of every service, we pray for people because we're not in it alone. This is not about us trying harder. This is about receiving his power, his healing, his forgiveness, his ability to actually forgive. He's forgiven everything. Imagine that. And we need his power to forgive other people. We need it, otherwise we're going to stay alone. Okay. So, would you just like to close your eyes just so that you're not distracted? Maybe hold out your hands just as a sign of being open. This is between you and him and no one else. Why don't you just come with words? You don't have to say anything out loud, but you can tell him what you need to tell him. As those prophetic words earlier said, there are people who probably for no fault of their own have been carrying a yoke around on their neck. Who have felt like they're trapped in a cage. And Jesus is here to unlock it and set you free. Only he can do it. And there are people who perhaps for whatever reason have felt like they've got to take it all on